if you uh, haven't been following along over the last several weeks, I've been going through a series. Uh, initially, the, the, the super title over all of the messages is called What the World is Coming to. It was something we started as a tradition many years ago, and I would start off, you know, like doing a, a message on what the world is coming to, and as times have moved forward, I started doing a couple messages, then four messages, then eight messages. So this year, to break all records, we're doing 12 um, and I broke them into subtopics. We talked, first of all, about what the family is coming to. I did four messages on that. So if you are curious, you can go to our website, and they'll, they're all listed there. And today is the last and the second part of that series of messages where I've been talking about what the church is coming to. We talked about a few weeks ago that the church is the greatest mystery, but we also talked about how that it is a powerful thing, that it's the greatest miracle, the greatest mystery. Then I talked about the greatest omission in the church's mission, mission, mission management, testing, testing. They get tired of hearing me turn me off. Um, <laughs> and today what we're going to talk about is the greatest deception, which may be something that will be a bit different than you may anticipate but it's important and it's foundational. Throughout recorded history, uh, mankind has maintained two basic views of the world, the universe, the reality around them. The first is that they had a sense of God. Uh, as John Calvin noted, he says, humans are incurably religious creatures. And the second thing that people are tremendously aware of is that there's a difference between right and wrong. We call it morality. And it starts very early. Every young child at some point in this, their life, maybe many times, will shout out, that's not fair. And immediately use that word or describe something as being unfair. You've established the premise that there is something that's fair, something's unfair. That means something's right, something's wrong. And extend it, there's good and there's evil and right on down the line. And this is especially true, we find, that when we talk about morality, um, uh, historian John M. Cooper put it really simply. He said, the peoples of the world, however much they differ as to detail, hold to a universal moral code that agrees rather closely with our Decalogue. In other words, what he's saying, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you find that the Ten Commandments in various forms exist in every single legal system and every culture that we look at in the world. They all agree that, that certain things are wrong and certain things are right. So that what it comes down to is the idea there's some kind of universal moral code that governs every society. And when that code breaks down, those societies begin to break down as well. In fact, there is, an, as Jay Budashevsky, a professor of theology at Texas University who wrote one of my favorite books of all time <coughs> entitled, What We Can't Not Know. I love the double negatives in the title, What We Can't Not Know. But he says basically this knowledge of God and morality is sort of hardwired into the human condition. He says, interestingly, as part of the common moral sense is that there is a common moral sense. He says it's as real as arithmetic and probably just as plain. We even appeal to it to justify wrongdoing. Rationalization is the homage paid to sin. In other words, the very fact that we try to justify and say that a wrong thing is right, 
really speaks to the fact that we have this common sense that we need to justify things that are right or else to deal with the sin and the guilt that comes as a consequence. So what is confusing about human behavior is that even though we know there is a God and that there is a right and wrong in this world, we also have the ability, as as Isaiah put it, to call good evil and to call evil good. I mean, historically, even the most immoral, inhumane person, say a guy like Hitler or Stalin, they believed that their evil was justified, that in order to accomplish what they defined as some greater good, it's like the saying, you gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet, which may make sense to you if you're hungry, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the chicken. So that what we find, like in a situation where a trans shooter goes in and, uh, and we're forced as a society to see this murder of, of children and innocence, and we're told that it's okay because she wanted to be seen. Because she wanted to be seen for who she claims to be. And then it even becomes more disgusting when the murderer is presented as being the victim. How does one make sense of that kind of nonsense? Well, first, let's be very clear, it's not God's fault. (laughs) In fact, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, he said, God made man upright, but men and women have sought out many devices. Literally, the term devices refers to ways of justifying evil. We come up with all sorts of novel ways to justify evil, that the Nazis justified their evil by saying, well, Jewish people or Roma or, uh, and in some cases, Christians weren't really people in the same way that you and I are people. They didn't have a human equivalency. They were lesser beings. They didn't have the same, they were what they called untermunsch, people who were under people. They didn't really qualify as full human But the second thing is that this behavior is a result of a conscious choice. A conscious choice to ignore what is obvious and to deny the undeniable. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1 when he says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, his eternal power and divine nature is obvious to anyone who wants to take a look. But these have been clearly seen, he said, having been understood from what has been made. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. In this context, the word futile actually refers to wickedness. They began to walk in a direction called wickedness. And wickedness is not what we often think of it. We think it's the supreme expression of evil, but wickedness is simply living outside of God's parameters. That when I choose to live and act in ways that aren't consistent with God's word and his will, I become guilty of wickedness. And he says, not only do they begin to engage, he says, but their foolish hearts become darkened. And although they claim to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made like mortal man. 
Hence, we end up with false religious systems. And consequently, because he goes on to say, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to sinful desires, and he begins to describe that as sexual immorality. Again, he says, God gave them over to shameful lust, which he talks about sexual perversions. And then lastly, he says that God gave them over to a depraved mind to do that which ought not to be done. And the word depraved means extremely wicked. They do things that are wicked beyond the normal estimation of what we would call wicked. In a short, what he says is mankind has gone about to create his own false religion to enable him to justify his immorality and to call the indefensible and abominable acceptable. It's like the LGBTQ community stepping forward and justifying the mass murder of children because the person who did it was trans and they wanted to be seen. The point is, false religion is not the consequence of some primordial or primitive ignorance, but rather, as Paul would say in Romans 1.28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. What we know intuitively about God, they said it's not worthwhile, it's not beneficial so they go about creating their own version of God, one that in fact looks and thinks and acts and feels just like them. This has been going on for a long time. It started the Tower of Babel for sure and continues at full force today. That men are constantly attempting to fashion gods after their own passions, their own priorities. In fact, we find that uh, Jeremiah the prophet said there are really basically two transgressions, two sins. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's an interesting comparison. You have this Spring of living water, it's fresh artesian well bubbling up to the surface with clean, pure, refreshing, cold water. And we say, no, I don't want that because we've got this, this uh, place that we've cut out in the stone where we store the rainwater all year. And it's kind of green and scummy on top. And, you know, and who knows what animals or insects have fallen in and died there. It's, it's really kind of putrid and it may, may lead to all sorts of diseases, but, and worse than that, it's got a crack in it, so it can't even hold the putrid water that's in it. And we say, I want that one. And most people would look at you saying, are you crazy? And from God's perspective, from his throne, looking at the choices of humanity, God just shakes his head in disbelief. You would choose that over me. This even happens within Christianity. That heresies, that is, teachings that are contrary or at odds with the Bible, started popping up almost immediately, which is why Jesus even said beforehand in Matthew 24, he says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many. I mean, even before we come into the last days, the end times, he said, there will be right off the bat, there will be people who will come up with novel interpretations. 
That in many ways, instead of seeking to conform my life to the image of God, of which I've been made in, we're attempting to fashion his image to look like us. I love the way Mark Twain put it one time. He said, God first created man and was so disappointed, he went on to create the monkey. And essentially what we're saying is that God who created us upright and in his image is something that we don't want, so we're going out to seek an image of our own creation, which is not very glorious and not very wonderful. And yet, in many ways, when you watch the commercials and advertisements that are put out there, aren't we constantly being told that we can be young and strong and vibrant and vital and simply marvelous for the rest of our lives if we just buy this product? I've got a garage full of stuff from everything from my pillow to naturally relief. It's, I mean, it's all this stuff, and I've stopped eating because I'm taking so many supplements. <laughs> and as you can tell, it's not helping. <laughs> of course, I exaggerate. That's my job. But every book in the New Testament actually has a similar warning to the one where Peter gives us here in 2 Peter 2. He says, there'll be false teachers, there'll be false prophets, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. Teachings that do more damage than good. Now, interestingly, over the 2,000 years of the history, we can identify at least 50 major false teachings that the church has had to address but they all tend to kind of be the same. They, every time you see a new false teaching, it's just a recycling of really something that, that was there before. Once you learn the basic groups, you begin to understand that this is just the same old thing given a new name and wrapped in a new package. It's kind of like your, your soap at home, you know, new and improved, you know, that really they just stopped, stopped putting salt in it and made it a smaller package. But it's interesting because they have these characteristics. First of all, invariably they want to redefine who Jesus is. They want to make him into someone who is explainable and maybe just controllable. He's a good man. He's a great teacher. He was a shaman. He was a guru. A man who became God after hard work and good nutrition. And basically if you do the same, you can become God too. Or they redefine salvation, which kind of goes, one goes with the other, because if God didn't die on a cross as payment for our sins, then how do we address the sin issue, which we may say we don't have, but anybody who knows you will confirm. So they basically say that Jesus was a way to heaven, but certainly not the only way. Or they'll say you're saved by works, not by grace. So they'll offer rituals and sacrifices or good deeds, and they'll also take credit cards. Or we have the opposite, which is it's all of grace, there's no works required, which basically becomes a license to live a sinfully rebellious style. I ask Jesus in my heart, I can do whatever I want now. Or they redefine eternity. There's no hell, or if there's a hell, it's not as hellish as the hell Jesus described. Or they'll say, no, you just die and you're annihilated. From dust you came, dust you return, and you just evaporate into the atmosphere. Except God tells us that the soul is eternal. So the soul doesn't evaporate. It's forever and ever and ever. And, of course, at the root of it is a rejection of a literal interpretation of the Bible. 
Uh, you know, people, I love people all the time saying, well, I take the Bible literally, except for there. I don't take that part literally. I, I think that was a mistake. But I take it literally. In other words, I began to say that I take a literal interpretation of all the parts that say the things that I wanted to say and reject what it doesn't. And although the church and the gospel are unstoppable, as we've talked about before, heresy does have a damaging effect upon individuals who get caught up in them. In fact, Paul put it very simply in writing to Timothy in the opening of his first letter to that young man. He said, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, some have rejected these and have also made shipwreck of their faith. A shipwreck is never a great experience. In other words, he says, basically, they end up damaging themselves at great expense. But Timothy went on to say later on in the fourth chapter, he said, the spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith. They will follow deceiving, seductive spirits, and they'll accept doctrines from demons. And then he goes on to say, have nothing to do with their godless myths and old wives' fables. You know, I, for years I've read that passage and thought, well, that doesn't really have contemporary application. <clears throat> you know, he's talking about that superstitious world of the ancient times, but we now live in the enlightenment, and besides, we have internet, so we're no longer held to this mythology. And then suddenly it struck me that we are, we believe wholeheartedly in incredible myths, godless myths, and we believe in old wives' fables, which is an interesting phrase on itself. You see, because although there are many heresies that have caused many to make shipwreck of their faith, the most godless myth that is so widely embraced is the doctrine of evolution. I mean, not only has it removed God as being relevant to both creation and to the creature, it's replaced God and, and banished him to the esoteric periphery of modern thinking. Evolution is the holy grail of modernism the foundation upon which every modern religious and se or secular movement rests today. I mean, think about it for a moment. Scientism itself, the worship of science as being all truthful, all honest, you know, as they say, we, you can trust the science. Well, I, I guess you can trust the concept of science, but sometimes you can't trust the scientist, Right? Because scientists are people like you and me who are subject to all sorts of negative and unfair and untrue influences. But the doctrine of materialism rests upon the idea that man is basically matter and all that matters is matter. That it denies that there is any kind of spiritual essence of you so they explain the behaviors, the thoughts, the actions of humans as being just basically chemical and electrical impulses so that when a people think they see God as they're passing from this world into, well, into dust, they're just having an illusion. Their brain is just firing on all its, uh, you know, short-circuiting the brain and we're starting to get weird images in our mind. But if you think you see God, 
like the man that I've been visiting for months, and he finally, as he's laying there, breathing his last breath, his, his hands go up. He hadn't spoken or moved in weeks, and his hand went up in the air, and he said, praise God, and he dropped dead. But I guess that was just an electrical chemical reaction in his brain. The whole idea of abortion is that we can do away with unwanted material because that's the way evolution works. It's actually survival of the fittest and there's nobody less fit to survive on their own than an unborn baby. And so therefore, it's just the pattern of the world. Or how about climate change? It's interesting, I was just reading an article from beginning in 1939 up until the very present of the predictions First, that we were going to be in a global ice age. You know, supposedly by the year 2000, the earth was being covered with ice and we couldn't survive. And then suddenly in 1978, they said, we're going to freeze the world and people are going to become extinct. And then all of a sudden, a year later, 1979, a whole new concept came called global warming. And even in this time as the war earth supposedly is going through this massive global warming, we find that world temperatures are actually dropping along with world population. And when Greta Thunberg said that by the year 2023, human life would be extinct, I don't know why she pulled that off her website. <laughs> oh, that's why. <laughs> Dumb me. Somebody made the comment, do you wonder why it's all young people that are all these climate action meetings, they're getting all excited? And somebody said, it's because they aren't old enough to know we've been hearing this propaganda for 50 years. <laughs> I'm a big fan of climate change. I, I go through it four times a year. <laughs> and global warming was always attracted to me because I always wanted Spokane to be a beach town. But the polar caps are just as thick today as they were 20 years ago, 30 years, 50 years ago. They're seven feet thick. They're seven feet thick tonight. The, there's the North Pole and there's the South Pole. And polar bears, man, there are more of them now than there ever have been. And yet you'd never believe it by listening to the things that people say because it's not about science. It's not about humanity. It's about power and control. Same way with population control. The Earth's population is actually decreasing, not increasing, or even the idea of globalism, that this is a natural progression of humanity that out of many shall become one. And so we'll all move towards becoming one great big global community. Or how about transhumanism? Transhumanism says this is just the next step as we transfer our consciousness into a, a machine that will be us. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I hope I have a choice because I always want to be a gumball machine and... <laughs> That's where I would like my consciousness to, to rest, where I could really destroy people's dental work. <laughs> and even more recently, the whole idea of transgenderism, that the homosexual community promoted the idea that they were moving towards same-sex relationships because it was an advancement in human evolution. And transhumanism is the idea, it's the ultimate statement of evolution. 
Because all these things are explained and rationalized based upon the idea that evolution is something that is true and it's factual and it's real. And if you don't say that you believe in evolution, it's automatically assumed that you are a flat earth, science-denying, knuckle-dragging, Neanderthal, January 6th, 6th MAGA man. You, you can't be taken seriously. But the utility of evolution as a concept is that it allows man to claim godhood. That under evolution, man is self-created and therefore self-governing. There are no rules that really matter. They're just artifices that people have created to control other people. We can be self-defining. I can be whatever I decide I want to be, and I will be self-purposed. In essence, when you begin to look at that list of things, self-created, self-governing, self-defining, self-purposed, you are also self-deified. You are a god. You just lack all the attributes of God. But we're counting on technology to catch up. So that it's reached the ultimate self-deification in the belief that I can self-identify my own gender. We reach that tipping point that societies reach that Isaiah warned about when he said, is what is formed, can it say to him that formed it, you did not make me? He who is formed by God is now saying, God didn't make me. I made myself. I think how prophetic Paul was when he warned that religion in the end times would be a godless myth. You see, despite the, what I think are the really serious misguided attempts of people with theistic evolution or progressive evolution. The idea is that God used evolution in order to create the world. This attempt to kind of marry the theology of science with the theology of the Bible, not only does it not work and not make sense, but this idea of weaving evolution into the Bible is an idea that doesn't work because evolution was specifically designed to exclude God. As Thomas Nagel in his book, The Last Word, honestly admitted, he said, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. This cosmic authority problem, that's interesting, cosmic authority problem. You know, if you come up with a phrasing that sounds intellectual, suddenly it makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. But break it down, a cosmic authority problem. The problem, he says, I have with having a greater authority than myself and submitting to that is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Now, here's a guy who's an atheist. He's an evolutionist. He's writing a book to support those positions. And yet he says, we really have just come up with a way of trying to explain God out of the picture. And then he says, the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about life. He said, Darwin has enabled modern secular culture to heave a great sigh of relief by providing a way to eliminate purpose, meaning, and design as fundamental features of the world. And what has that left us with? 
Christopher Taylor, in his book, The Secular Age, wrote, he said, while the sacred aspects of life and reality were plain and obvious to prior generations. In other words, prior generations understood that there was a God who created all things. And we are the focus of that God, that he's concerned about who we are and what we do, that he has a wonderful plan for my life, but I have to be willing to commit and, and comply with that plan. He said, this was obvious in past generations. But those who have been shaped by the ideas, technologies, and habits of the modern world tend to miss the sacred, the transcendent, transcendent means above us, and the divine. Instead, life proceeds without even considering God. Good things come from our hard work and planning, not from the gracious hand of our loving Father. A secular age, which is what we're in, offers all kinds of God replacements. Sex, self, stuff, state, and science. The secular age, though, he says, ironically, is filled with faith just in all the wrong gods. So that we become as base in our idolatry as the most primitive tribal people or as we often admire the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians that went before us. They had their idols. The Egyptians had their idols, their images. And he says, we really have not moved one step further. We just have given them new names. But you would say, well, but hasn't evolution been proven to be true? Well, of all people, Harvard biologist Richard Lewontin has described modern scientific evolutionary theory as being patently absurd, extravagant promises that it can't keep. It's unsubstantiated, full of just-so stories based on a prior commitment to materialism. For example, despite scientism's claims, they can't answer the most basic question of what we call origins. Where did we come from and how did we get here? The Bible's pretty clear and unequivocal. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yet, those same people would argue that because I can't prove to you in a laboratory setting that God created, that I can't make that statement and be considered worthy of listening to. But neither can they prove that he didn't. And that becomes the key point. They can't explain the complexity the perfection, the symmetry, the, just the very issue of beauty. So they have this unexplainable dynamic of life itself because, you know, one of the things we know scientifically is that there's no such thing as spontaneous generation, that no creature has ever been able to create itself. There's no example in history or science or anything that something was nothing and then suddenly it became something. But that's exactly what the basis of evolution is. 
So what they do is they offer unprovable scenarios or just-so stories claiming those things are true. They said, well, it all came from the Big Bang. Or there was this huge cosmic collision or this one-time, never-to-be-repeated chemical event that serendipitously happened at just the right time and just the right amount of chemicals and electricity and, and just at this particular moment and they formed a one-in-a-million-quadrillion-gazillion reaction that will never be duplicated again and that produced life. And you throw in a mix of billions of years and suddenly you have the universe. It reminds me of the example a teacher in a Christian school was giving to his science class. And he asked the students, he said, now, if I take, a, if my car breaks down, I lift the hood and I, I'm looking, staring at the hood because that's what men do even if they don't even know what they're looking at. But they look the hood and you act like you know what you're doing. He says, so I go back and I pull a wrench, the biggest wrench I have out of the trunk and I walk around to the front of my car and I way back and I throw that wrench as hard as I can at that, at that engine. He said, if I do that, will that fix the engine? And his students, to, a, to a, every one of them said, well, of course not. He said, what if I threw that wrench at that engine a hundred times? Well, he said, that wouldn't make any difference. What if I threw that wrench a thousand times? Well, that wouldn't change anything. Okay, what if I threw that wrench at that e engine 14 billion times? And every one of his students says, well, in that case, yeah, you probably fix it. <laughs> you see, the problem is you can add all the time you want, but if you don't change the basic dynamics, nothing's changed. Now, what we're told is there are other dynamics that we don't know about, but we're speculating and guessing that they were there even though we can't see any evidence of them now. See, we have actors who aren't at the scene of the crime. Now, this issue of not being able to answer the most basic questions of who made the chemicals and the energy and the matter in the first place. So if the universe was created with a big bang, I would ask where were the combustibles from and who, who flicked their bick? I mean, there has to be a Bangor to have a bang, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about that city of Maine. It, there has to be some kind of something that institutes it, and we understand these are, the, these are the laws of science, which they believe feverishly and are able to do scientific research because they submit to the laws of science, and yet they tell us before the laws of science were created, there was this period of non-science that made all this happen which is what makes evolution into a godless myth. It's godless, it rejects God, and it replaces God with a mythological explanation. See, mythological means it's not based upon fact or reality, it's just something that we tell people to believe. And it's interesting that Paul would throw in this phrase, the old wives' fables, because in the ancient world, old wives' fables eventually became the religious and theological foundations of whole societies. 
So that when the Greeks or the Romans or the Persians or the Egyptians believed in this multiplicity of various gods who did various things and they had these amazing fantastical stories, you know, that how that light, the world began and how man came into being and you read them, people saying, well, it's just like the Bible. And let me tell you, when you read the Bible, you read Genesis 1 and 2, it reads like a narrative. And a narrative means it's a historical rendering of events. When you read those things like Gilgamesh and the rest of this stuff, you look at it and go, well, that didn't happen. That's not realistic. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. And so we're so sophisticated. <laughs> I mean, Socrates was executed because he rejected those kind of old wise fables and myths. And that's why today we can correctly identify many of the things we hear as just being old wives' fables. I mean, there's so many similarities. I mean, recently, Dr. Fauci told the world that to question him was to question science because he is science. Those are his words, not mine. Yet now we know he, along with the government and the media and most of the medical community, were not being scientific at all when they told us we have to wear masks, two, maybe three, that we need to lock down society, we need to have mandates forcing people to do things that they don't want to do. Today, it's pretty unquestioned, unless you, <clears throat> um, unless you only watch CNN. Those things did more harm than they did good. I mean, it's, it's not really even up for debate anymore. Which raises an important question, what else have they not been honest about? See, according to The Lancet, which is Britain's most pre prestigious medical journal, considered by many to be the most prestigious, even more than the you know, American Medi Journal of Medicine. I mean, it's, it's held as being number one. Uh, in a recent article they published, they asserted that as much as 90%, 90%, of scientific research results are fraudulent, falsified to ensure continued funding. In other words, if you've got a research grant and you're doing this research and you're not coming up with evidence to support the conclusions that you're trying to find, then what the tendency has become within the scientific community to just simply falsify some evidence so that they will continue to refund you again and again and again and again. And it works really well. So that we end up with what one science said is, we end up with a lot of zombie science. I like that idea of zombie science. You see, zombies um, are really interesting because uh, there's not a lot of people, well, yeah, right. <laughs> Similarity is not sameness, okay? <laughs> but zombie science is always fascinating to me because zombies... And this is where a lot of people are safe. I don't think anybody in government's going to have to worry about a zombie uh, apocalypse because all zombies eat is brains. So they're pretty much safe. <laughs> but we hear things like 99% of our DNA is the same as a primate. You're only one percentage point above a monkey. Now, there's some people I talk to, I think that may be right. Or we're told that there is a gay gene that explains homosexual behavior. Or we're told that abortion is health care. And that gender is fluid and 
has limitless ways of evolving. But the fact is, what we do know today, and I, was, I didn't have time or space to, I could have cited some of the most prestigious Smithsonian, Science Magazine, whole list of, I mean, I just found dozens and dozens of scientific journals that are saying we are 98%, 99% primate. And yet, as we have progressed, the highest we can rate maybe be 84%, someplace between 70 and 84% of our DNA, which involves gazillions and gazillions of differences. Now, we do share 92% of our DNA with a mouse, 80% with cows. I don't mean that personally, ladies. I just can't help it. If I haven't offended you at least once, I haven't done my job. Eh? But maybe this is more accurate. We share 50% of our DNA with bananas. <laughs> Which basically is so significant that we don't mistake bananas for people. <laughs> Geologist Jeremy Lugan, Lugan, Luskin, Luskin put it this way. We're the ones that write scientific papers about chimpanzees, not the other way around. We're the ones who compose music, that create art, that build cathedrals, that use complex technology, that create religion and write symphonies, not chimpanzees. We also know today, and they knew it very soon, but they still repeat it, that there was never any gay gene. Even the researcher who made that claim finally admitted that he falsified his results in order to promote the gay agenda, which he was an advocate for. We know that abortion is very bad health care for both the mother and the baby. And we know that gender, there are only two, is biologically fixed at conception. So, I mean, I don't want to disappoint you, but you can't change your DNA with high heels and a chiffon dress from Dior. Which is basically what the Bible has told us for the last 4,000 years. You see, evolution incited the demise of faith in the Bible. If we go back to the beginning of the 20th century, most of our seminaries began to say, well, we can't take the first 12 chapters of Genesis seriously because obviously it's not based upon scientific fact and that science has proven that we are evolved beings, that we were not created by God by caveat instantly and therefore... As one elderly pastor friend of mine that I served with years ago at Costa Mesa told me that when I finished seminary, I was unable to read the Old Testament anymore. I couldn't believe it. And here he was in his 70s, my age, and he was looking back and saying how I was taken and duped as a young man to miss out. He says, I'm literally pastoring for 50 years and I know almost nothing about the Old Testament. And why should you? If the first 12 chapters of Genesis aren't historical and aren't reliable and aren't factual, if they are unscientific, doesn't that be marked as being the first in a series of dominoes that's just going to fall all the way till you get to the end of the book of Revelation? The implications are huge, and yet I find 
most Christians don't really think about that. So that when we look at the downward spiral of Christianity, the loss of faith in Christianity, the promotion even within the church of lifestyles and behaviors and all these different social movements that are going on, and you find that pastors are mainly being silent or even in agreement, we say, how has this happened? And the answer is because long ago they were convinced, you can't trust the Bible. And so they find clever ways. They say, well, I take the Bible literally, but they don't take it seriously. Because when you take it seriously, you actually begin to predicate your life choices and decisions based upon what the Word says. I mean, you know, that's the hard part about daily Bible reading, right? <laughs> you read it and go, oh, stink. Do I really have to love them? <laughs> oh, do I really have to forgive them? There's got to be a loophole in here someplace. But what happens, as we studied earlier in the family about the third and the fourth generation, the first generation, we have the faith of the fathers. And that's what made our nation great, by the way, was the faith of the fathers. But that faith became simply the religion of their children. And their children followed not the religion, but the traditions. So it's going to be Easter and we got to come to church because that's what we do in our tradition. We're going to pray at the table before we eat because that is our tradition. But children who look at actions and behaviors and choices and particularly restrictions that are only based upon tradition without any real faith behind them will quickly see those traditions as just being an unnecessary burden so that the grand, great-grandchildren walk away and they don't even feel like they're walking away because they have no concept of why you believe what you believe. So when Paul says to Timothy, be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have to anyone that will ask, we oftentimes aren't even able to give a reason for our faith. We'll say something like, well, I just believe it's true. And for most people whose brains are still young, flexible, and functioning, that's not going to be good enough because that's exactly what the people on the other side say. Well, I just believe I'm being true to myself. No, you're lying to yourself and then you're saying it's truth. But everything objectively around you says, that's a lie. See, I'm not suggesting that you reject evolution as a worldview because that's what it is. I'm just suggesting that you understand that it is wholly incompatible with biblical Christianity. And that we need to be reminded of the warning of Jesus when he said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There's just not a middle ground here. You know, Jesus said, I would you were hot or cold. But if you don't think it's a worldview that can make smart men sound stupid, listen to... One of my favorite, uh, Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, probably considered the most famous uh, atheistic biologists in the world today. Um, here was a, a response to the question. It, uh, 
Now, if, as I read this, if you're going to going, what? You, you understand, he, he's really good at double talk. If you know a lot of good vocabulary words and you kind of slur them all together, you can really make something sound intelligent, so intelligent that you don't ask any questions because you feel like it must be me. No, it's him. It's really him. He's that this confused. Here's what he said. Some people think that to live in a universe without any purpose is sort of a bleak and cold. Now just take that statement. You think it's bleak and cold to live without any purpose? You wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is, what am I going to do with this day? Don't worry about it. You have no purpose. Nothing you do matters. There's no right and wrong. There's no good and evil. Just if it feels good, go out and do it. And sometimes I wake up and you know what feels good? Spending every penny in the bank account on some stupid thing. Of course, I'm subject to a higher power, my wife. But he says, I think it's rather exciting to have a life that has no purpose. Okay. I like the idea that nothing fundamentally has a purpose. Of course, in biology... Things have a kind of pseudo-purpose, which is due to natural selection. The bird's wings have a purpose, which is flying, which were designed by natural selection, not by any designer, and it was never a purpose in anybody's mind. So when a bird flies, it has no purpose behind flying. It has wings that did not have anything to do with any creation or design or anybody. They're just there, and there's no reason we should ask any more questions. So those of you who like to sit on your deck, like my wife and I do, and, and feed the birds and watch them flying and go, you are wasting your time. There's no meaning or purpose to that whatsoever. Why they don't show up when there's no bird seed, I don't know. Because there's no purpose. He goes on, so, so in biology, it's impossible to resist the language of purpose because, obviously, I would say, because purpose is found in everything. <laughs> but the purpose is not an ultimate design by a conscious individual. It's purpose that arises cumulative by the blind forces of natural selection. So if you see purpose in the world, it only looks like there's purpose in the world. If you give birth to a child and you start finding yourself feeling warm and affectionate towards that child and you start thinking about his or her future and you begin to feed and nurture and clothe and protect and do all those things, you've got to understand that has nothing to do with a purpose. Your purpose is not to preserve and promote the life of that child. Your purpose is, well, you have no purpose. Do you realize what this does? Don't worry about aborting your baby because it has no purpose. Don't worry about if you harm somebody because there's no purpose. There's no design. There's no accountability. I, I, I'm trying to say this as clearly as I can because I find many people say, well, I believe in evolution. I said, do you ever consider the, the practical implications of that philosophy? Because it's not science. It's a philosophy. It's a theology. That if that's true, there's no design, there's no purpose, there's no goal, then nothing means anything 
And therefore, no matter what you do, it's okay. So the Soviets could justify killing 16,000 Ukrainians, 60 million Ukrainians, because there's only one place where there's purpose in the world, and that's the state. The Nazis could justify killing 10 million people, 6,000 Jews, but 10 million people, because after all, evolution has told them that they're not really people. And evolution has been used in various ways throughout the 20th century and the 21st century to make it the most brutal theology, the largest death toll of any culture in the world, or any time in human history. And the biggest mass murders on the planet have not been individuals, but they've been governments who twist the narrative to accomplish their own desires for power and control. Can you see how this is going to slide into my next on what the world's coming to, what the country's coming to? But I think this is so fundamental. I think as difficult as it may be for us sometimes to think through these things, it's important that we realize that we have been, every one of us, raised on godless mythology and old wise fables. And we've heard them so much that we just accept it as being factual. Sitting on a plane one time, coming back from someplace, I can't remember where, I'm sitting next to a young man and I open my Bible and I start reading it. And it's, it's, you know, it's late at night. And he goes, is that the Bible? I said, yeah. He says, why are you reading it? I said, because I believe it's God's word. He says, oh, I couldn't believe that. I said, why not? Well, because I believe in evolution. Really? I said, have you ever been presented with any other option to the origins of the universe than evolution? He went, well, no. So I gave him a list of books written by secular scientists basically saying <laughs> it doesn't work. Darwin's Black Box and all these other really interesting books written by scientists, contemporary scientists saying, you know, this, it just doesn't work. It, as Gould at Princeton said, we need to come up with a new myth because evolution never wants, he's only the head of the Department of Biology at Princeton University. So he says, we need to come up with a new myth because evolution does not work. Darwinianism does not work. And yet, even to this day, we find whole generations that have been so saturated in this theology that even within the church, we find people are poisoned in their thinking because basically, they believe that ultimately, life has no purpose or design other than what I make of it. I hope that makes sense.